0: As we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, today you can probably guess by the video that we're going to be talking about calling and the fact that each one of us is called by God to do our part in carrying out His will on this good earth. In fact, He not only has a plan for this world and everyone in it, but He has designed and created you, I'm convinced, to fulfill a very specific part of that plan. And the sooner that we recognize that fact and respond favorably to what He's intended for you in your life, the sooner you begin to live out your God-designed destiny. And I can tell you firsthand that there's nothing more satisfying, uh, more gratifying, or fulfilling than answering the divine call of God on your life. I used to build houses for a living. I was, uh, for the better part of a decade, my wife and I built a small business building homes we worked very hard. We did a good job. And it was successful. Uh, but that whole time, it was never really a good fit. Uh, it was kind of a square peg and a round, round hole thing, and I knew it. Yet I had friends who did the exact same job at the same time, and they were thriving in it. Because they were called to serve the body of Christ, at least in part by that vocation, that profession, and to the people in that industry, to be ministers in that professional field. But I wasn't working for my calling at that point in my life. I was working for comfort. And there was a great salary, and there were great benefits associated with owning and operating a a successful small business. Yet there's a difference between comfort and calling. So we should ask ourselves, am I working in this life to achieve comfort or am I working to fulfill a calling? Because for years I worked for a comfortable, stable, prosperous existence and it isn't that comfort and stability and prosperity are bad. Not at all. Those are all great things actually and there's certainly nothing wrong with desiring comfort and stability and prosperity. Okay, The point is that when we focus on calling... Rather than comfort, we're pouring ourselves into ministry first. And we're allowing God to provide our comfort and stability and prosperity that we desire as He sees fit. But when we focus on comfort over calling, we're pouring ourselves into providing for our own interests first. We're providing comfort and stability and prosperity as we see fit. And then maybe after that we give whatever is left to God or to the ministry and so I'm not at all saying that you need to, you know, quit your really well-paying job that you love and set up a tent village under a bridge somewhere to feed the hungry and become a poor street preacher. Okay? The poverty gospel is just as much an aberration of the true gospel of Jesus Christ as the prosperity gospel is. All right? Neither of those extremes are prescribed in the Bible. What I'm saying is that we should be honest in assessing our own focus God may very well have you in the career or at the exact job where He wants you, but ask yourself, what is my focus? That's key. Is it uh, to build my kingdom or to build His kingdom? Because your ministry, your calling may well be in that engineering job or at the doctor's office where you work or that business that you run. The key is to focus on the calling, meeting the needs of the, the ministry that is available to you which is namely making disciples of Christ right where you are, wherever God has placed you, above your own comfort and stability and prosperity. And then let Him take care of your needs as you focus on your calling. Okay, And so we we talk a lot in churches, at least in our tradition, about discovering your calling, finding out what your calling is. We have tests that help you determine your personal gifts and personality traits and the areas of uh, ministry that you would naturally be more effective in. And that's all fine. But today we're going to focus more on the purpose of our calling because, honestly, that's where our text is leading us this morning. And so that's where we go. And there are people who already know, uh, certainly, what they were created to do. Some of them, I think, just have a hard time doing it because of the sacrifice required. Or maybe they uh, have not yet fully appreciated the gravity or the value in it, which was certainly the case with me for many years. So I dabbled with that calling. I worked part-time at that which I was created to do full-time and then devoted the lion's share of my time to building my personal kingdom. And you know, God is gracious, and he blesses us even when we don't get everything right. He's patient and he seems to, to keep working with us while we figure life out. And I'm very thankful for that, of course. But we could also save ourselves a lot of heartache and consternation if we'd simply heed his word that is so instructive and so often prescriptive for our lives and for the fulfillment of our calling. Okay, So let's pick up our story. Where we left off last week, we'll start at chapter 6 of Acts, right from verse 1. For the past two weeks, we talked about uh, the need for accountability, both in the body of Christ, and the church, and accountability to God, as we work through chapter 5. And right from the beginning of chapter 5, we saw the first signs of trouble brewing in the early church the dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira, which threatened the unity of the congregation. And then here in chapter 6, we see the first signs of unfair treatment, possibly favoritism within the church, which was also ultimately threatening the unity of the body. And because there aren't many aspects of the church that are as important as its unity, according to the Bible, anything that stood opposed to that, certainly in the first century church was handled with extreme prejudice, okay? There was uh, no waffling when it came to disunity in the body, which is why Ananias and Sapphira were dealt with so severely, in part, and why we see swift action being taken in chapter 6 to restore balance to the ministry that was becoming inequitable, all right? So let's pick up our story, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, So in the synagogue, uh, there was a routine, a custom, to provide for those who were either temporarily unable to provide for themselves or even those who were permanently... uh, in a state of needing welfare. And so the custom was that two collectors would be assigned to go around to the market uh, every week and door to door to people's houses every Friday morning, actually. And they would take up a collection of money and goods for the needy. And then later in the day, what had been collected was distributed. So for those whose needs were temporary, they would receive enough to help them to get going. And for those with permanent needs, they were given enough for 14 meals, or two meals a day for an entire week. In addition to all of that, there was a separate door-to-door collection taken up daily for those with the most uh, pressing needs, and that was dispersed as needed. And so clearly the Christian church here had adopted their own version of this custom from the synagogue to provide for the needs of congregation and so there was a daily distribution and as the church grew so did the needs and so did the the complexity of the administration of the ministry and so here we see these hellenists which were greek speaking jews from the diaspora which was those were the jews who were earlier dispersed they were living outside of palestine But they've now returned, probably, to live out their days in Israel. And obviously, there was a a significant number of them who were elderly widows. And again, their primary language was Greek. And they were being neglected by the Hebrews, uh, who were native Palestinian Jews, who spoke Aramaic. Okay, they weren't fluent in Greek. So there was a clear language barrier happening, and certainly some uh, cultural differences as well. And although scholars don't completely agree on whether or not this imbalanced distribution of food and money and goods was intentional because of prejudice or unintentional, maybe brought on simply because of the disparity between languages and culture, either way, the Greek-speaking widows weren't receiving their fair share of the daily distribution. That part is clear. And the problem needed to be addressed, not only for the sake of fairness, but also to maintain unity in the body. ...which was beginning to, to fracture. Okay, The word complaint in verse 1 is the Greek word gagousmas. And it's the same word that's used in the Septuagint... Or ...the Greek Old Testament in Exodus sixteen, seven, ...which describes the Israelites grumbling... ...they're complaining, they're murmuring... ...against the Lord as they were wandering in the desert. And they didn't have the food that they were accustomed to eating... ...during their captivity in Egypt. So, although the intent may not have been malicious by the church leaders... Uh, in the inequitable distribution to the Hellenist widows, it was still wrong. All right? and, and the gagousmas the complaining within the congregation, uh, was certainly malicious. And it was clearly threatening the unity of the body. all right. So let's see how the church leaders handle it as we continue to read in verse 2. Uh, and as well, this next part of our text demonstrates that we're called to serve. And that's point one of our outline, if you're taking notes. In other words, there's always a a specific purpose for our calling. We're never called so that we can simply hold a title. You know, reverend, pastor, prophet, bishop, I mean, whatever we call ourselves. Fill in the blank. Titles can be helpful in any organization for the purpose of identifying who does what, but that's about the extent of it. To be honest, one of the, the red flags that I've learned To identify, after many years of ministry, are those people who feel the need to announce their ministry title to me the moment that we meet. I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. I'm a continuationalist. That's a fancy word that simply means that I believe that all of the gifts of the Spirit are still in operation today. However, anytime someone feels the need to inform me that they're a prophet in the first five minutes of our first meeting, or they they share all of their supernatural experiences with me the first time we meet, and that's happened to me many times, that is the moment that they've completely lost me. I have no respect or tolerance or time for those who claim to be believers who try to use titles to wield an unhealthy influence over others in the body. They are to be rebuked biblically If they claim to be a believer and brought to repentance and restoration, that's always the point of rebuke back to the body unless they refuse correction. And then through the biblical process outlined in Matthew 18, in that case they're to be excommunicated from the church. Of course, we always leave the door open for restoration, all right? if and when that person is repentant. But short of that, we're not to tolerate false prophets in the church. False teachers, those who try to use position and titles and their, uh, their giftings, whether real or perceived, in the church to gain an unhealthy influence over uh, others in the body. Right? We simply cannot allow that behavior to continue unabated in the church because it will rapidly erode and eventually destroy the fellowship. I've seen it happen in at least two churches over the years. I know that some of you have as well. Okay. So, if our motivation in ministry is to obtain a title, we will never uh, fully realize our calling because our calling has a specific purpose to evangelize, uh, train, equip, encourage, build up, disciple. There's always a purpose to the call, and that purpose is always to serve. All right? To serve. So, let's read verses two through four, and uh, we'll expound on these verses a bit, and then we'll come back to this first point of our outline. Uh, about being called to serve, all right? So verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. (laughs) Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That is quite a statement by the church leadership, isn't it? It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. If a pastor said that today, we'd run him right out of the church, wouldn't we? Or we'd just leave and go somewhere else, right? What a jerk. Man, he thinks pretty highly of himself. Won't even stop what he's doing for some poor little widows. By our standards and expectations of church leadership today, this seems like a really arrogant statement by the disciples. But if we think of it that way, we're definitely misreading it uh, at, at best, and at worst, we're completely missing the point. The church leaders here were not making a statement about their own importance. Not at all. Rather, they were making a statement about the importance of preaching and teaching the Word and prayer. In short, they were making a statement about the importance of fulfilling their calling. Okay, The great theologian and pastor, R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite, he wrote, Every year, 17,000 ministers in America leave the ministry. A primary reason is that ministers in the modern church are not encouraged, equipped, enabled, or allowed to devote themselves to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Today, a minister is expected to be the CEO of a corporation. He's expected to do the administration and the work of development. He's expected to be an expert in counseling and pastoral care. As a result, we've raised up generations of pastors who are jacks of all trades and masters of none. And one of the reasons why they do not open the Word of God for the congregation on Sunday morning is that they do not know how. They've spent their time learning everything else but the texts of Scripture. Okay? We could probably ap- apply this line of thought to anyone's calling. It is paramount that once we've identified the calling, and that has been confirmed by others, which we're going to talk about in a minute, it is paramount that we not only pursue that calling with vigor, but we guard it, even when that means saying no to other pursuits, no matter how noble they may be. Right? God has called you to something. Not to everything. You with me? God has called you to something, but not to everything. You cannot be all things to all people. Believe me, I've tried. The end result of that is usually you end up being of little use to anyone. Okay? When God calls you, you certainly work with everything that you have to fulfill that calling in your life. Even to the exclusion of other activities. But by all means, fight the good fight. Finish the race, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.7. In fact, uh, in Romans 11.29, Paul says that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So don't ever give up on your calling. Labor for Christ in your divine calling as long as you have breath. Because the calling never goes away. It doesn't retire. It doesn't give up. It doesn't quit when times get tough, and so neither should we. And the response of the church leaders here in verse 2 underscores this remarkable importance of of their calling. Okay, It isn't about a title. It's about service. And these seven men who are about to be appointed by the church for service are being called and appointed because the church was growing. And in that time of growth, there were needs, new needs that were presenting themselves. The seven wouldn't have been called if there was no need for seven men to serve the body. But as the church was expanding its reach, needs arose, and others were then called to serve those people and meet those needs. Okay, And that brings us to our second point of our outline. We're always called to serve, and our service is a calling to the body of Christ. We're called to the body of Christ. We aren't called to serve the environment. All right? We're commanded to be good stewards of it. But our calling is to serve each other, the body of Christ, and and to make new disciples. We aren't called to serve political interests. We're certainly expected to represent Christ in politics and in our government, but our calling is to serve the body of Christ, to make disciples. And that means that there are no lone rangers, there are no self promoters in God's service. All right? No lone rangers, no self promoters. We're not called to build our brand. to promote our awesome ministry skills, to be the most popular church on the block. Not at all. We're called to serve the body of Christ. And the scale of that, whatever that ends up being, small church, medium church, mega church, whatever it ends up being, that's entirely up to Him. Our part is to serve the body of Christ, to be faithful in fulfilling that calling, and then let Him build the church. That's what we see happening in the New Testament. Uh, I have friends who are traveling evangelists and many of them are truly men of God they've submitted themselves to other ministers or other ministry organizations they're certainly humble and eager to serve the body but i'm very cautious when i receive requests from others to come and minister here which i get every week because some of those appear to me to be self promoters kind of lone rangers with little to no accountability in their ministries and their websites Uh, and promotional materials boast about their associations with other famous evangelists and all of the miracles that they perform at every meeting. I'm not trying to trash anyone here, okay? I'm simply saying that we are all, every one of us who follows Christ, we are all called to serve and to serve the body of Christ, not ourselves. There is no biblical basis for self-promotion in ministry. All right, so it really matters that we honestly assess our motivations anytime we prepare to engage in any kind of ministry, whether it be on a worship team, leading a prayer meeting, teaching a Bible study, preaching a sermon, whatever it is, it's always appropriate to check our motivation. Am I doing this to serve others and lead them toward Christ or, or to promote myself and lead them toward my own purposes or my own agenda? Okay? So God doesn't call Lone Rangers or rock stars to his service. And point B, your calling should always be confirmed through the church. This is a big one. Again, this is why it's important to ask other ministers or leaders before we give them access or influence over our fellowship. Who are you accountable to? Are you affiliated with other ministries or ministry organizations that you're submitted to? Because your calling should always be confirmed through the church. Those that announce to the world one day that they're a prophet or a teacher or a pastor or an evangelist, a leader of any kind, should always be confirmed first by other leaders, other elders, pastors in the church, before we ever allow them access to the body, the congregation, in a teaching or a leadership capacity. We've had two individuals with their spouses come to this church just since we planted it. They're not here now, so I'm not embarrassing anyone and announced to me that they were prophets of God and that they had a word from God for this church. And the first line of questions that I asked them was, who are you affiliated with? Did you come from another church? Have you been ordained into the ministry by eldership, the pastoral leadership of a church? Who has confirmed your ministry? And right on cue, their answer is always along the lines of, well, I've been approved by God. And that is all the approval that I need. And if you press them, they will invariably begin to cite many of the Old Testament examples, like Moses and the other prophets and so on, who were called, appointed, and commissioned by God alone. Well, I'm sorry, but that's the wrong answer. Okay, Because after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on earth, and the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, God instituted the church. ...which Moses and the Old Testament prophets didn't have. And he instituted the church as his primary human agent on earth for ministry. The means by which he directs and guides and leads and ministers and disciples... ...and heals and confirms others into ministry. It's all done through the church. There are no Lone Rangers post-Old Testament because we now have the church. And some say, well, the great Apostle Paul, he was kind of a Lone Ranger... He most certainly was not. He was called by God. Yes, we all are, by the way. Our calling doesn't come from men. You understand? Only from God. But the calling is confirmed by and through the church. Paul's calling and ministry was confirmed by Barnabas, a church leader, to the other leaders first. And, and then his ministry was accepted and confirmed by the rest of the leadership of the church. We'll be reading about it in the coming weeks in Acts chapter 9. and uh, starts in twenty Verse 26. Paul's calling and ministry were confirmed by the leadership of the church. And further, he was submitted to the church leadership, which we'll see in Acts chapter 15, at the Jerusalem Council, where all of the church leadership gathers to discuss some disagreements about doctrine and ministry. And the big guns were all there, and they all spoke about the issue, Peter and, and Paul and Barnabas. And when everyone had spoken their piece about the matters at hand, James, a pastor of the church, In Jerusalem, arguably the lead pastor, the lead elder, made the final judgment about the issue, settling it once and for all. And then the elders, the pastors of the church, gave Paul and Barnabas and several other apostles their marching orders. And they sent them on their way with a letter to the other churches. So even the great apostle Paul's calling was not only confirmed by church leadership, but he was submitted to the leadership of the church as well as were all of the uh, church leaders uh, in the New Testament, which is why we will not entertain or allow uh, self-proclaimed, self-appointed ministers to stand in this pulpit and speak any word over this body unless they too are confirmed by and submitted to the leadership in the body of Christ. Does that make sense? And so anytime folks come here and tell me that they want to exercise ministry in this fellowship, if they cannot provide... A clear answer to me as to whom they're submitted to and confirmed by, unless there's a church ministry organization that I know and trust well, by the way, then the conversation is over. All right? And that's part of my job as a pastor to protect the congregation from false teaching, from false doctrine, or anyone who would otherwise lead us away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So your calling should always be confirmed through the church. Let's read about it now in our text. We'll go to to verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, they set them, these, excuse me, they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice the apostles didn't simply say okay uh, to these men that had been chosen out of the congregation. After they were selected, they were then appointed and approved and commissioned by the leadership of the church before they began to serve. And that was done by a prayer and the laying on of hands. Why the laying on of hands? Because all throughout Scripture there's power. We don't have time to go through. There's a lot of Scripture that demonstrates the power... Uh, and blessing associated with and transferred by the Holy Spirit through others to those being prayed for when we lay on uh, hands on them. That's particularly the case in the Bible with the right hand. There's uh, all many examples. Priests blessing children at the synagogue. Fathers uh, blessing their children. Um, the, the, the goats and the sheep were separate, separated right in Revelation. The goats to the left, the sheep to the right. Jesus sits on the right hand of the Father. There's a lot of significance in the right hand, particularly, but in the laying on of hands in, in blessing and power, particularly as we commission people into ministry. So that's why we lay hands on others when we pray for them and we confirm them and commission them into uh, this ministry. When I was licensed and then later ordained by the Assemblies of God leadership, All of the lead elders, the pastors from around the state, and some from our national office came, and they laid hands on me and others who were being ordained. And they prayed over us and confirmed our ministry as elders and pastors in the church. And it was very powerful because it followed the biblical model for bringing others into ministry leadership, okay? So we're called by God to serve the body of Christ, the church. And that calling is confirmed through the church. And then what happens when we follow the mandates of Scripture, when we follow the, the patterns established in the Bible for the church and for carrying out the ministry, the results then are both powerful and undeniable. Let's read in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Simply put, it It just works. For the church to function as it should, we follow the patterns established in Scripture. And through that effort, the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men and women, and the church grows. He he builds the church through us as we follow His plan for it. Does that mean that everything goes smoothly? Of course not. As we uh, see in the remainder of chapter 6, there will always be struggles, hardship misunderstandings, and sometimes outright persecution, even when we're doing everything according to His Word, okay? Which leads us to our final point, and I'll hurry this morning. Uh, We are called to sacrifice. Okay? Let's finish our text for today starting at verse 8, where we learn more about Stephen, one of the seven who was chosen out from the congregation and confirmed by the apostles. Starting in verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, and Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy pla- this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Interesting last verse. Obviously there are false accusations being made about Stephen. They were secretly instigating others against him. He was, in fact, the victim of a great conspiracy to end his life, all because he was carrying out his calling to serve the body, which was confirmed by the church, and here he's being lied about and falsely accused. I can think of all kinds of expressions that would be on my face if I were in Stephen's shoes, but the face of an angel isn't one of them. I've been wrongly accused of things, I'm sure many of you have in your life, and that actually shouldn't surprise us at all when that happens. Until Jesus himself returns and sets right all of the wrongs in this world, there will always be men and women whose hearts are set on doing evil things. And that shouldn't really surprise us. However, what is almost shocking about this passage to me is not the false accusations and lies against Stephen, which we would be defending ourselves over hotly, his reaction to those lies and false accusations. It's amazing. And we'll get more into that next week as we read about his response in the next chapter. But the point to take away from these last few verses of chapter 6 today is that part of the calling is a call to sacrifice. As long as we choose to represent Christ in this world, to answer his calling on our lives, to serve others and speak the truth of the gospel, there will always be sacrifice associated with that. For Stephen, it was persecution. For some, it is giving up their former life, leaving a job, security, comfort, stability. There's often very real risk involved in answering the call of God in your life. We're supporting missionaries right now from this church who are serving the body in countries where sharing the gospel is not welcomed or legal. And I think that we all have to ask ourselves, am I willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to answer the call of God on my life? Because without question, answering that call will require you to sacrifice something. Often many things. And in the case of some, it means sacrificing everything. That was certainly the, the situation with Stephen and many of the prophets and certainly the apostles. But know this. There is no sacrifice in this life that can even begin to compare with the reward that we receive in Christ when we choose to answer that call. In this life, yes, but especially in the next. It's hard sometimes to convince people of that because when we look at others who have given up every comfort and convenience to answer the call of God in their lives... It can seem unpalatable to us, not pleasing at all, but that's because it isn't our calling. That comes from answering the call that God has placed on your life. And although that often won't make any sense to other people around you, even in the midst of all the sacrifices that you may have to make to answer that call, you will be more at peace, more fulfilled than you ever imagined that you could be because you'll be doing exactly what he created you to do and there is no better feeling in this life than that we're all called to ministry to serve God through the church whatever that requires from us the question is are you willing to answer that call